Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and welcome to today's episode. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about just a dumb online fraud criminal, mostly because I think we all need some humor in our lives right now. And sometimes hearing about stupid criminals or however we want to call them can be cathartic. And I know a lot of us were hoping that the start of our 2022 would be much different than the last two years. But I know for a lot of people that hasn't been the case. So that's one reason why I wanted to start with some humor today and and cover this story, but also because there's actually a lot that can be learned from this story and this article. And I actually then went on and did a deep dive a little bit more into the Department of Justice information and charging documents and all that here in the U.S. And I just think it's an interesting case study. But even dumb fraudsters can cost companies and governments millions of dollars. So I think it's also a really good reminder, and I will go into this in a lot more detail later on in this episode, but it's a good reminder to all of us that while we're often thinking about the next big thing and the next more you know sophisticated method that may be impacting your company, sometimes it's the least sophisticated that actually can make a pretty big hit. So that's what I'll be talking about the main part today. This episode is sponsored by Sion. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about them later on in the episode, but in the meantime, you can check them out on their website at seon.io. And we very much appreciate their support. One of the reasons why we brought on sponsors for this year, and they'll be changing um, every few weeks or so, is so that honestly, I could be able to to spend a little more time on this podcast. And it's because of that and probably even more so because of your support. Everyone who listens to the podcast, who likes and reviews it wherever they can, who shares it on their social media, who shares it with their teams or their colleagues, all of that adds up into larger downloads for me. And that is why I was really excited to get this text message from my producer today saying that we broke a record for downloads last week. So Thank you to everyone. And it's not really about like my downloads. This is our podcast. And I don't mean that cheesily. I really have a desire for featuring other people in the industry for exposure and for other people to learn from and just to have be a conduit of information year round, especially because of the last few years and not being able to go to as many conferences in person, there's been a lot of people that have felt disconnected from the industry. And I really appreciate when I hear from people that by listening to this podcast, they feel a little more connected, a little more, you know, okay, I understand what's going on with other people or other companies and are still able to learn from your peers in the interview episodes, like the episode with Diana Gajic Physic last year with last week. Oh my gosh, it might feel like last year, but it was last week. And she's from 
JD Sports North America and Finish Line. And I know a lot of you really enjoyed listening to her. So it was no surprise to me that last week we broke the download record. But I have a feeling this week's going to be pretty popular too. I had the chance to speak with Gary Novello Jr., who is the director of fraud strategy and analytics for Macy's. And that was in part one of our conversation was just this past week. So if you haven't yet listened to it, I highly encourage you to. We talked a lot about how he approaches working with other departments, especially as he's been fairly new to this role. He spent almost 20 years working in in-person loss prevention in store. And I kind of have always thought that would be significantly different than online fraud. But he did a great job of explaining the differences, but also the similarities. And he's been able to transfer what works for him in store into the digital fraud strategy and analytics for Macy's. And he's had some big success. And especially being the new guy, he's had to forge new relationships with cross-functional teams. And he has a different approach than Diana. So I highly recommend listening to part one from this past Tuesday. And then on February 1st, this coming Tuesday, part two will be released. And that is also going to be great. He shared some of his favorite fraud stories at the end, which was fun. And there's just a lot of great information. So with all of that, we are going to dive in to talk about who I think one of the dumbest online fraudsters is. I could be wrong. And I think we all have dumb criminal stories from our days on the front lines. But this one is not only funny, but really infuriating. It's also, like I said, it's good to learn from. And it is good to see that the Department of Justice is paying attention to some fraud. Now, is can it be argued that maybe that's happening because this specific fraud and, and other cases like it that are getting headlines right now are often attached to COVID relief funds, whether it's through unemployment fraud, the Small Business Association, emergency. Oh, gosh, I can't remember all that EIDL stands for, but the EIDL program, the PPP program, which we talked about a little bit with Gil Rosenthal when he was here a few weeks ago. So Obviously, that really had a big impact on it, but it's impacted online e-commerce as well as fintech fraud, too. Honestly, last year in one of my retailer calls, people were asking, is anyone else having lower fraud? Like, where'd the fraudsters go? We're worried that we aren't catching them. And really what we came up with was, well, there's a lot more free money from government programs right now. And so that's probably where they're spending their time, especially based on different fraud forums. I would also say, though, that when you're just looking at chargebacks, you are bound to be missing some and also what was found in looking more at the data and especially with a couple of the companies that are my clients, I was able to see that while their chargeback volume was down, while their chargeback fraud was down, often their refund fraud was way up. So there were other areas within a company that were also being exploited. It wasn't just like they all went from online to the government, but there was a fair amount. So let's talk a little bit about Eric Jacklitz. I hope I'm saying his last name right, but uh, I will spell it out in the show notes so you can take a look. Although he didn't target online merchants or fintech specifically, there's a lot of lessons for the online space in this. So I hope you won't just give up and stop listening because of that. His target was the California Unemployment Insurance Program. 
a reminder to anyone who is outside of the U.S. and hasn't heard about this yet or just in general because it feels like this has been a really long time. In March of 2020, a lot of people lost their jobs pretty suddenly. And so the U.S. government put in programs quickly to supplement unemployment insurance to help those people. Oftentimes, unemployment insurance, which is run through the state, maxes out at a pretty low amount. And so it's not enough for people to really sustain their lifestyle, but it is often enough to kind of take care of the basics, depending on where you live. And the decision was made by the federal government just to increase every state's weekly unemployment insurance amount by, I think, about $400 a week. I could be wrong about that, the exact number. But that effectively more than doubled some states' unemployment. And that made it very attractive to fraudsters. And so this guy, he lived in New Jersey, possibly New York. It's kind of unclear, but he was receiving shipments in New Jersey anyways. And it looks like he's been indicted in New Jersey. But I saw some New York addresses as well in the information. He used his own name and address to file for unemployment in his home state of New York first. And I think he learned how easy it was. So a month later, he started targeting the California Unemployment Insurance, which is EDD. I think it stands for Employment Displacement. Oh, I have it written down somewhere in my notes. I apologize. But the California EDD program is their unemployment insurance. And he went on to file for unemployment in the state of California 78 different times in the span of about a year and a half. And he was approved for at least 68 different names and applications for a total of $900,000. He actually filed for $2.5 million. That's how much he attempted, but how much was actually sent and received and spent by him was $900,000. He used different names. They were often real names and social security numbers of real victims. Some of the jobs included a zookeeper, an aqua fitness, or what we call water aerobics instructor, a funeral car driver, an ATM technician. So he stole the identities of all of these victims. And while those IDs were stolen, the victims weren't unemployed and often didn't qualify for unemployment. So they wouldn't necessarily know about it. And we've heard and read and seen a lot of stories about fraudsters that successfully stole identities and stole various COVID relief funds beginning back in March of 2020. Honestly, April and May is really when it kicked up. And that May is when Eric started doing this. I'm sure you're asking, well, what makes this guy any different? Well, <laughs> all 78 applications had commonalities that probably should have been caught. The first one is that he used the same phone numbers across all applications. Uh, he had the Employment Development Department, that's where it was in my notes, prepaid debit cards sent to the same address in Elizabeth, New Jersey. So part of me is like, well, why would California Employment EDD? department even do send money to Elizabeth, New Jersey, but that was possibly common. I don't know. There's a definite breakdown there. I have a feeling that the shipping address of where the prepaid debit cards were sent was not included in the application process. It was probably an address added after the application was approved. That is strictly a guess, but that seems to be something that you would think would be caught. Hmm. We're sending quite a bit of debit cards to Elizabeth, New Jersey, and this is for California State. 
huh, maybe we should just double check that those people deserve to get money from California. But then again, I'm going to talk a little bit more about state unemployment <laughs> issues from back then because I fortunately or unfortunately have a little bit of uh, experience in this area. So additionally, uh, when a selfie or ID card were required to prove the identity of each applicant, he used the same fake ID formats. Often there wasn't even a city listed in the fake ID and would wear cheap fake wigs. His face was never altered, including his beard, even when victims were female. So it's easy to say cheap fake wigs, and it's hard for me to exactly explain them over a podcast. But the closest thing I can explain them to, because I have seen them, is it was almost like it looked like he was wearing the same wig every time. And it looked like it was a cheap party wig from like a party supply store for a clown, like a red curly haired short wig. So it wasn't even like a longer one that maybe could have gotten from a costume store or anything like that. I mean, geez, for $900,000 that you're stealing, you would think he could increase the quality of wigs. But as we talk about all the time, fraudsters will meet you where you put the bar. If the bar is really low, there's really no incentive for them to raise it on their end. So that's really what. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. in this case. <laughs> well, I did refer to him as a dumb fraudster. The fault and the blame of the fact that this guy used 60 identities, then the same shipping address, the same phone number, the same identity pics, all pictures all the way through and addresses and all that from May 2020 to December 2021 to receive $900,000 on prepaid debits is 
probably more the fault of the state fraud department. Uh, I wouldn't really call them a fraud department. Now they certainly are, but back then, uh, and I'll talk about that in a second, and the vendors that they were using for not catching this much sooner. So it's easy for those of us who have been charged with identifying identity theft and online fraud for decades at this point. Most of us probably between 10 and 20 years, but there's some people that have less. There's some people that have more. A lot of us think it's just crazy that a state would offer all this money and not put things in place. But I have some personal experience with this and there's only so much I can say. But I think I've mentioned just in passing before on a past podcast episode or two that I was asked to work with one of the states that was first hit with identity fraud for unemployment fraud back in 2020. It feels like it was over a decade ago when it happened, but I can share a little bit of insight into how just how unprepared they were. I don't know how else to explain it, but I've also worked with some of the big brands that have had a huge hole in their processes as well. And they're constantly looking for the the new, most sophisticated methods and trying to put in new technology and aren't always missing these more easier, lower level fraudsters that are much more low tech than high tech. So it's easy for us to point the blame and say, well, this is a state problem. I work in the private sector and we have more of a budget. We know what to expect, et cetera. But I would just say that there's no one company or one entity that is immune from this kind of fraud more than anyone else. So in providing some of the things that I noticed when working with a state unemployment insurance company on fraud prevention during this time, I'm not going to try to justify how they missed this specific case, but I can share some of what I learned generally to provide some context. I did not work with the state of California. I did have some correspondence with senior leadership there, but I didn't work with them. And I have chosen not to share exactly what that correspondence was publicly, but I did ensure that they were aware that that some of this was happening at that time. I actually reached out to most of the states that were being impacted, not necessarily because I was trying to sell my consulting services. I'm not really, my strong suit isn't in sales. I'm very lucky to have a lot of word of mouth referrals and very appreciative of, of that. And I actually think that is even more of an accomplishment than being good at sales and, and leads and marketing and all of that, though I would like to be good at both. But it was more so because I was worried that they didn't know this was happening. And I was working with someone at the time that had a lot of insight into the fraudster side of this issue and was trying to just get information to multiple states. And I will say that most of the states told me to kick rocks in different ways. One of them pretty much told me to F off, but that's a whole other story. But there was just a lot of, I don't want to say denial, but just not understanding the impact or that this could happen. And honestly, for companies that are not in the e-commerce space that have not had chargeback liability or other liabilities like this, they just don't think about it. And especially for unemployment departments up until March of 2020, they never really were concerned about identity fraud. The amounts weren't really worth it in fraudsters' minds. 
but also they were just insulated from that. And so there was just a lot of layering issues that made this the perfect storm, right? There was so much money giving out. There wasn't enough time to really fully vet everyone. There wasn't enough time to actually get ahead of it and be proactive. There were a lot of people who genuinely needed those benefits and were held up for weeks, if not months, because once some of the states recognized that there was fraud, they just pulled back altogether and decided to manually review everyone, which actually honestly wasn't that effective. You would think that humans would be able to tell suspicious behavior more than, you know, technology. But in this case, that wasn't the case because they didn't all know what they were looking for. So anyway, they weren't prepared at all. The staff, there wasn't anything set up. There was a kind of a fraud department. I can't remember exactly what it was called, but they were really more concerned about people claiming unemployment, but working a job off the record. Uh, so they weren't as concerned about identity theft or anything like that until this happened. You better believe they are now, but it's a little late. Also, they didn't really have many, if any, controls or insight into any identity signals. They were thrown into giving away double the weekly amount of benefits almost overnight with no preparation. Everyone was working from home. They weren't able to hire any new staff for the double, triple, quadruple amount of volume of applicants they were receiving. I mean, there were already going to be so many more legitimate applicants than usual, but then you add on this extra layer of just hundreds of thousands, if not millions of claims that were fraudulent, and it was just too much for the system to bear. There was very little approval for new technology, no time for or resources to implement it. And I wrote this down, but I want to be super clear that I'm not trying to say this one because oh, they should have hired me or anything like that. It's just from what I know from talking to some of these states, both at the time and afterwards, in some cases, states hired big name consultancies as an emergency. So they had no time for a bid or to look at other resources or anything. And they trusted that these big name consultancies knew what to do. And in at least one case with a state, they paid almost seven figures for help and advice that didn't do much, if anything, unfortunately. And that is also frustrating. I have my own frustrations with that, but that is for another day. But it is worth saying that in a lot of cases, in a lot of industries, big name consultancies do the best work. But in some niche industries, unless you had experience working online, when you're not in person verifying identity, you weren't going to be able to help these states as much as others could. The existing tools just weren't set up for this problem. Like I said, it's same with the few staff members that they had reviewing uh, cases. They just weren't set up for thinking about identity fraud. And honestly, it was just total chaos. Everyone was working a bazillion hours from home. Think about how just topsy-turvy the world was back in April and May of 2020 and into the summer. It's just there was a lot going on. It was I mean, I know this phrase is overused, but it really was a perfect storm. There definitely were mistakes made, but I can't and won't go into the details about specific states or decisions. But we can dive into how these three commonalities that Mr. Jacklitz got away with. And I think you many of you have already honed in on them and what could be done, what could have or should have been done. But I mean, clearly, 
there should be some form of velocity and verification with outside sources around phone numbers. Systems should be able to see how many accounts, whether it's for a government agency or an online company, how many accounts are connected to a phone number, an email address, a shipping address, a billing address, a IP address, a device. That's important, right? Velocity. That's kind of a core thing we often look at. You can also look at the velocity of orders placed by a single account. There's a lot of different things, but looking at, I would imagine if somebody at some point looked into the system and said, huh, I'm looking at this phone number. And if they had a way to see how many accounts are attached to that phone number, they would see that there were over 70 accounts attached to that phone number and then diving in even more. And hmm, just asking why, right? Why are there so many people? Why are we shipping these cards to New Jersey? Why, why, why? If you're able to look at the identification documents and the identification documents like their driver's license, et cetera, on file for those accounts, maybe you could see that it's all the same person. And I'm going to be including some links to some stories where you can see these lovely pictures. They definitely tell a thousand words, as they say. So also the same shipping address for the debit card, like I mentioned before, it may not have been captured at the time of application, but that is something that should have been looked at. Those types of signals, right? Any kind of signal of information that a customer or an applicant is providing you is valid to look at, to not only cross-check within your system, but outside of your system, looking at it with verification tools, et cetera. And then the ID card I and mean, with the wig and the same face, the guy didn't even shave if it was a woman's account. Right. And it was very, very obvious. It was really like face palm obvious. But in this case, these teams weren't trained to look at this. I know that it's public information that ID.me was brought in to be used by a lot of states. And I know my previous podcast partner has a lot to say about them and don't necessarily disagree. I, I don't know a lot about them, but I do know they're fairly new. And I do know that they've been manipulations posted online in various places, whether it's YouTube or other forums on how to manipulate their system. But I mean, honestly, I've looked at a lot of ID verification systems and a lot of them do have vulnerabilities. It's still emerging technology. I will say there was a different company that I identified for the state that I worked with and that I recommended, but I don't think they actually went through with that. I think they went with who the other states went with. Right. And I see that a lot on the merchant side often like, well, my competitor uses these guys, so I should use those guys because it means that my competitor did their due diligence so I can just tack on with them. Well, that's not always the case. You can't always assume that just because a large company or a competitor company uses a specific solution provider that they knew what they were doing when they were choosing it and that it was the right for their right solution for their company. But also they might have completely different problems than you do. So anyway, that is another rant for another day. But I know that in this case, that was a situation where, hey, who do you use? Who are you using? Oh, we're using these guys. OK, we'll use them, too. So that is kind of how that happened. But I will say in ID.me's defense in this situation, it looks like just based off of what I could piece together in the documentation for this specific case, that ID.me wasn't implemented until October of 2021. And when it was, they went back through and I'm I'm piecing some stuff together. But because ID.me actually caught this, I am assuming that they went back through the identity documents and started to identify kind of what we would consider low hanging fruit for 
people that they can prosecute. We may not be able to pull this money back, but how can we get some justice? So I do have to say that ID.me was actually really integral in even catching this guy. So I'm going to give them that. I, I could say more, but <laughs> what I think it's important whenever you're looking at any of these things it, and looking for gaps in your processes is to not just think about the forward thinking, but also think about how low is our bar? How, how low is the barrier to entry to steal from us? What are some low tech things that could be done? This guy legitimately, I hope he didn't pay more than $10 on that wig because it's really bad, but he spent very little money and the identities documents, the big driver's license he had, I think I mentioned they didn't even have a city in them half the time. They were really shoddy. They weren't even the good ones from ID God and they were getting through. I will say that I have had conversations with some companies and some fraud teams and identity documentation verification doesn't make sense for every online merchant for sure, right? If I'm buying a pair of shoes and somebody asks me to upload a picture of my driver's license, I'm going to be like, I'm just going to go to buy shoes from another place. So I don't recommend it for everyone, but there definitely are situations, especially when there's real world impacts such as ride sharing, home sharing, all the sharings, marketplaces, etc. And when you're getting money, right? When there's peer-to-peer -peer money transfers, when there's banking involved, credit cards involved, in this case, unemployment funds involved, it makes perfect sense to have as a user, as a legitimate user to upload your identity and your, your driver's license to prove that it's you. And I've had a few conversations with companies like that where I would say, hey, I, I really recommend that you consider this because a lot of times they're accepting driver's license anyways. So there are some companies that for a additional form of manual review, they might ask for someone to send in a picture of their driver's license. And when they're doing that, when they're receiving them anyway, and they're just eyeballing them, there can be a lot of room for error, but they don't think there is. So I had a client once and actually this has happened a few times, but this one just was a little bit of a face palm. Again, I asked if they were using any kind of identity document verification solution and they said, no, they didn't need to. They fully capable of being able to identify fake IDs. And so I just out of curiosity asked, well, what training have you done? And I was very legitimate. I wasn't trying to be rude or anything. I was just like, well, what have you done to, to learn about this? And they just very plainly said, well, it's easy when somebody has a picture of Taylor Swift's face on it or when there's a guy's name, but a woman's picture or a woman's name and a, and a picture of a man, then it's a fake ID. And I went, oh, boy, have you seen how good <laughs> IDs can be now, how legitimate they can look? So while Eric Jacklitz did not use a good fake ID, there are some really good ones that legitimately to the naked eye, you couldn't really see. You couldn't tell the differences unless you maybe had a real one next to it. But even then, uh, a few years ago, Brett, my former podcast partner, actually ordered about $900 worth of fake IDs. We did a whole podcast episode about it on the Frogcast. And we later spoke at a conference together and he brought them to show me and I could not for the life of me, I had his real one and I had his fake one from the same state. I could not figure out the differences. It came down to the font as well as the emblem on the back of the kind of like the, the emblem on the back of the card. It was just a little bit different than the real one. I mean, there's just no way a human could pick that up unless they were really well trained. So. 
whenever anybody has a business case where it warrants checking IDs, even if it's over the internet, I highly recommend using a identity document verification tool. Now, they're not created equal. There certainly are some that I've heard from multiple merchants that they would never recommend or that they've used and it's cost them more money. There are others that seem to have better customer experiences. So anyway, I that's what I base my recommendations on whenever anyone reaches out to me for a vendor recommendation is I'm basing it off of what their customers say about their product as well as their service. So that just makes it easy for me so that I can take myself out of the equation and so that they're trusted recommendations. I don't want anyone to be like, well, Carice said that we should talk to these guys and they're awful. So I mean, always do your own due diligence as well. But anyway, I'm getting off track. But <laughs> overall, there was over $100 billion lost due to COVID related programs and fraud related on them. And I mean, this story alone, just showing, you know, where 1 million went, it makes me think that that $100 billion number is still low, especially as they are still identifying fraud after the fact. And we all know, and I think most of you, if not all of you listening to this podcast know that when it comes to fraud, that old adage that our grandmother said about an ounce of prevention being worth a pound of cure is actually an understatement. Had these states been better prepared for identity theft and just looking at all these things and had more things in place, technology, as well as people who knew what they were doing. I think a lot of this could have been stopped. But some of the lessons out of this are that not all high dollar losses are sophisticated. It's important to know that not all fraud technology is created equal. Uh, I sometimes get frustrated by that as well, where I will uh, be talking with a prospective client or with a current client who will say, well, we were using this company. But because they're all the same, it's like, well, no, actually they aren't. Or sometimes I'll have companies say, we're talking to this company, this company, this company. And I'll say, well, what are you looking for? Because all three of those solutions do completely different things. And honestly, vendors use all the same buzzwords. So it's really, really hard for merchants, especially merchants who don't have somebody on staff who really understands fraud inherently and knows the landscape of technology to know the difference between those that use buzzwords and those that know actually what they're doing. But check with people that do. That's the easiest thing, right? And on the vendor side, they need to learn to speak the language. But that's, again, whole other rant and not worth it for this episode. But asking the experts in a niche field don't have pride to think, oh, this is easy. I think that's something that, of course, any of us are going to say that are in fraud where we want to justify our self-importance, but there is a lot of truth to it, too. This is kind of a no doubt, but layer fraud technology. Use your internal data with external technology, right? So if you're using your internal data to tell you there's some patterns here, there are multiple accounts that are using the same email address or password or, well, passwords a little more general, but different factors like that. You can strategically leverage some technology out externally. It doesn't have to be 27 different layers of 27 different vendors. It can be one or two, but layering, making sure that you're putting in enough layers so that if one layer doesn't catch something, another one will. And then obviously hiring people who know what they're doing. Sometimes people can look at an industry and think, oh, it's easy. I do that. I mean, sometimes 
I know in the past I have thought, oh, salespeople don't have a lot of skills, but I am sorry, salespeople, you abs- most of you absolutely do. Because as I mentioned earlier, I'm not the best at it. And I'm okay with saying that. And I think that it's important to recognize that sometimes we don't know everything and we need to ask. And I think that some of these states would have been much better off if they would have asked for help from the right people earlier. And again, this is not about me being jaded because people didn't reply to my emails in a nice way or whatever. That's not it at all. It's just, I actually wish I was wrong. I really wish that two years later, we found out there was no fraud at all on state unemployment and that I sent those emails and was being chicken little. I would much rather have that be the issue than what has happened. So the last note I want to make is that I'm seeing this, the massive amounts of fraud, the over $100 billion of fraud. Now that a lot of these programs have ended, I'm seeing a lot of fraudsters come back to e-commerce and fintech, but with so much more capital to invest in fraud. They've got more bot systems. They've got human bot farms. They've got more data and information about the victims. I think these this is something I talked about in last week's fraud news episode. So last Thursday's episode, if not the one before, you know, just talking about all the different ways that retailers are seeing fraud be impacted in new ways. So anyway, that is how I'm ending this today is just, you know, we need to continually know that fraudsters are going to continually revamp. They've taken a lot of this money and reinvested it into a war chest to keep building their empires. They're not just a lot of them are not walking away saying, "Woo, I've made a million dollars. I'm going to walk away and retire. No, they're reinvesting that to make more money and more money. It's addiction. It's a game. So with that, I know that that isn't super sunshiny and I apologize for that. But I guess on the flip side, if you have a meeting with your supervisor in the near future and they are talking with you about some fraud that you missed and it's a thousand dollar chargeback or whatever it is, I guess you can just say that it's a good thing that Eric Jacklitz didn't try to defraud you and that it could be a lot worse. (laughs) And that's where I'm going to end this episode today. I hope you all have a great weekend and I look forward to talking with you soon. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.